My wife has a shirt that, if I'm going to be honest with you, I envy. I envy this shirt. It says on it, we look most like Christ when we serve. And I love that. I love that message. It's true. And you might think to yourself, well, if you envy it and like it so much, why don't you just go out and get one? Well, that's because it comes in this very feminine color, and I just couldn't bring myself to wear it. Speaking of t-shirts, my wife, Heather, she also recently made some t-shirts for Harvest Kids. If you work in Harvest Kids, you've got one of these. And she put a verse on it, Mark 10, 45. I'm going to actually preach on this verse in a couple weeks. I'm excited about that. But here's what it says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you want to know something? That's the theme verse of the book of Mark. It sums up everything that we've been talking about. It sums up the divine servant. He didn't come to be served, even though he deserved all of our service. He really did. He could have spent his time on earth receiving service from us, and that would have been right. But he didn't do that. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And that introduces the topic that we're going to be talking about this morning. What are we after as Christians? We're after Christ-honoring servanthood. Christ-honoring servanthood. Not servanthood to gain attention. I'll be honest with you, I've been there. Wanting to look good in front of others, and that's what motivates me to serve. That's not what we're after. That's not Christ-honoring. We're not after service that's in it to get something. Sacrificing our time and energy to reap some kind of reward. That's not Christ-honoring servanthood. We want Christ-honoring servanthood. So what does that look like? I want to peek this morning into the idea of Christ-honoring servanthood. That's what we're after this morning. And I'm going to be honest with you, today's message is kind of a two-part message. Because Jesus goes on after the reading that Mike Vernon just read. He goes on to talk. So we're going to deal with the first part. We're going to deal with true greatness that comes in the form of Christ-honoring servanthood. That's what we're going to deal with today. And then next week, we're going to look at what servanthood is not. What's the opposite of loving and serving others? It's loving and serving self. And that's what Jesus addresses next week. But for today, let's dive into true greatness which is Christ-honoring servanthood. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm going to jump back to verse 30 and read through 32. Follow along as I read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Your first point this morning from our text is this. What does Christ-honoring service look like? Christ-honoring servanthood is sacrifices to the extreme. Christ-honoring servanthood sacrifices to the extreme. Now, Jesus, as I've been saying for the last couple weeks, he's headed toward Jerusalem. He has been traveling to Jerusalem. He's on the final stage of his earthly ministry. He's headed to the cross, and he knows it. And we've seen him travel through somewhere north of Galilee. He's headed south. And this morning, he gets back to Galilee, presumably, presumably for the last time. 
And as you know, as we've been going through Mark, Jesus' main ministry takes place in Galilee and the surrounding region, and here he is again, and Scripture tells us he doesn't want anyone to know. Honestly, as we've been going through Mark, we realize this is not surprising. There have been other times throughout our study that Jesus doesn't want anybody to know where he is. We've seen his desire for secrecy, so he can get in and out of places, not draw unnecessary attention. Most of the time it didn't work. But it's not surprising this is what he wants to do. But this time we're told there's a very specific reason why Jesus didn't want anyone to know. And that's because he's going to take the last bit of time that he has to teach his disciples. He's about to hand over the mantle, so to speak, to those who are going to continue spreading the gospel after him. So he is pouring his last days into his disciples. And what does he teach them in our passage? The first thing he does is he reminds them of the plan. You remember we looked several weeks ago at what, what was the plan. And this is the second time that Jesus addresses the plan, that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. That's the plan. And he had previously told them this in chapter 8, so why repeat it? Well, if you remember, he shared with them the plan, and they didn't like it. In fact, God's, or Jesus is going to share with his disciples three times in total the plan. He's going to say it three times in total, and after each of those three times, we're going to see that the disciples do something stupid. So they don't get it. He tells them the plan, and they do something stupid. A couple weeks ago, we saw that Peter responded this way when he took Jesus aside and said, no, this is not going to happen. And Peter, by the way, is the spokesperson for the disciples. They were all thinking that. Jesus shares the plan here, and we're about to see how they respond to that. And then we'll see again in Mark 10. Jesus shares the plan, and then it's James and John's turn. It's their turn to do something stupid. So Jesus repeats the plan. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And here... Again, Jesus uses that phrase, the son of man. I told you a couple weeks ago, and just by way of reminder, son of man is Jesus' favorite term for himself because it emphasizes both his humanity and his divinity. Son of man was used in the Old Testament to refer simply to men, a son of man, men. But then in the book of Daniel, it's used specifically speaking of one who would come and receive a kingdom. It was a reference to Jesus. So this term encapsulates both his humanity and his divinity. And also, Jesus introduces a new element here. He didn't say this part before. He introduces this. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He hadn't told them that was part of the plan before. And our first thought as we read that, because we know the story, our first thought is Judas. He's talking about Judas. Judas. But there's something interesting about that term delivered there. It's not in the future tense like we would think it should be. It's actually in the present tense. And what that does is suggest to us that the term delivered into the hands of men is already happening. It's already in effect. And Judas hasn't done anything at this point. But the plan for Jesus to be delivered into the hands of men is already underway because it's a plan from the Father. God the Father is already at work initiating the plan. After all, this was God's plan from the beginning. It's already in motion. Now the disciples here, and notice they don't respond except the scripture tells us that they were afraid. They didn't say anything to him, but they were afraid. Now why? You know, Jesus tells them he's gonna die. Well, that would be shocking. But then he says, you know, I'm gonna rise again. And you might think, 
Can we talk more about that, Jesus? What's that all about? But they don't. It's like they completely miss it. They're just fearful. Why are they afraid? Why don't they speak up? Well, possibly because last time somebody spoke up, namely Peter, he got rebuked. And that might be thinking, I'm not going to say anything. And we also read that they don't understand. Again, they, they, they just don't get it. So they're afraid, they're confused, and they just decide, let's not say anything. I'm not going to be the one to open my mouth. Well, let's talk about this. What does Christ honoring servanthood look like? It looks like extreme sacrifice. Now, Jesus is our ultimate example. He's our ultimate example of service by totally denying himself, following the Father's plan, and going to the cross to suffer alone and pay the penalty that was not his own. That's extreme. Perhaps you've seen on TV some of those extreme sports. Anybody ever seen those? You know, it's not just football or basketball, but it's, it's when somebody does something crazy because either they have an addiction to adrenaline or a death wish. It's crazy. Waterfall kayaking. It's exactly what it sounds like. Going over a waterfall in a kayak. Highlining. That's basically tightrope walking over elevated heights like a canyon or a ravine. Base jumping. You'll all want to sign up for that one. It's free falling with a parachute from a tall building or some tall structure, but not deploying your parachute until the last minute. By the way, that one's illegal. And these things are extreme. And you're watching these people do these things on TV, and, and we're thinking, these people are nuts. And most of us in this room, I say most because a few of us are nuts in here, but most of us in this room would not dare to attempt any of these extreme sports. But what about service to our Lord? Does anyone see our service to the Lord and think, wow, they're nuts? I kind of hope so. Now, what does extreme service look like? What, what, am I, what am I actually talking about here? Am I saying, you know what, let's go into every ministry that we can, let's keep ourselves busy, let's stretch ourselves as thin as possible? No, that's not what I'm saying. I don't even think that's scriptural. What I'm saying when I say service to the extreme is not necessarily quantity, but quality. Jesus, he didn't go solve all the problems of the world. He didn't go defeat Rome. He didn't even heal everybody he encountered. He simply followed the Father's plan. Jesus obeyed the Father's plan. He did everything that the Father wanted of him. So see, I'm not talking about quantity. I'm talking about quality. Where are you serving? Are you throwing yourself into it? Are you serving to the best of your ability? Are you denying yourself in what area, whatever area of service that you are in? Has your serving just become a check mark? Or are you serving out of a deep love for your Savior and his people? Anyone can fill a role, but only one with true servant-mindedness can fill that role for the glory of God and for the love of his brother and sister. I understand we all have limits. Please understand what I'm saying. We need our rest. That's why God built in a Sabbath day. I'm not saying burn yourself out, but I am asking, can your service to the Lord be described as extreme. 
Have you gotten comfortable at a certain level when God might be asking you for greater quality? Let me just encourage you, pray about that this week. Talk to your spouse about this week. Follow the Spirit's leading on that. But you know, there's not, a, not just in serving in church, there's another way we can apply this. Are you serving those around you in your everyday life to the extreme? Can your service to your spouse, your kids, and those you come in contact with be described as extreme? We look most like Christ when we serve. Christ-honoring servanthood sacrifices to the extreme. Here's your second point. Christ-honoring servanthood does not discriminate. Christ-honoring servanthood does not discriminate. Look at verse 33 with me. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, so they're back at Capernaum. And you'll remember this is Jesus' base of operations. This is where Peter and Andrew's house was, which is probably where he went. And he's got a question. What were you discussing on the way? When God asks a question, that should always remind us of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned. They're hiding. God calls to the man and he says, where are you? Adam calls back and and says he's hiding because he's naked. And God replies with another question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Questions. We talked about this a little bit last week. God often asks questions. Why? Giving his people a chance to come clean. I mean, think about it. Jesus is God, right? You believe that? Okay. Jesus is God. He knows what they were talking about. Why does he even bother asking? You know, last week, as we mentioned, you saw, we saw Jesus ask the father of the demon-possessed boy how long the boy had been in that condition. Why did he do that? Because he was communicating his compassion through a question. This time, Jesus is offering them an opportunity to come clean. Garrett Higby is the lead care specialist for the Great Commission Collective. And the Great Commission Collective, by the way, that's the organization that we are a part of as a church. We're affiliated with them. And Garrett Higby says this, a question pricks the conscience, but an accusation hardens the heart. If Jesus had walked into the house, sat down and said, you bums, seriously? You are arguing this whole time who was the greatest. I can't believe you guys. By the way, this is the stupid thing they're doing. Jesus tells them he's going to go die, and they argue about who's the greatest. But you see, that approach would have just hardened them. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been confronted that way with just an outright accusation? Even if the accusation was true, what did it do? It rubbed you the wrong way. It's not the way to address a situation. By no means... Am I great at this? I'm trying to learn. 
but I try to address my kids. When something's happened, when there's a conflict, I try to address it through questions. Why? Because I'm trying to get to the heart of the matter. A well-constructed question can beautifully unwrap the issues of a person's heart far greater than a flat-out accusation. So Jesus asked them a question, but notice they keep their mouths shut. They're very silent in this, past, in this text this morning. They keep their mouths shut. Why? Because they've been arguing about who was the greatest. For real? Do you, do you get into those kind of arguments with people? I mean, do you sit around with your friends mouthing off about how great you are and, and why? Is that normal dinnertime conversation? What's going on here? One thing that I want to remind us all about before we're too hard on the disciples is let's remember that we're in an honor-shame culture. In these Eastern cultures, getting honor and avoiding shame was high priority. The more you honor you got, the more you were respected. And the more shame you incurred, the more you were looked down upon. And people in the first century had this whole ranking system of who was greatest and who was least. Rabbis, priests, scribes, rulers, they were considered high in the ranking system. And the common worker was considered low on the ranking system. And the whole culture was inundated with this idea Gain honor, climb the social ladder, make, give yourself, make yourself higher on that scale. And if you add on top of that, if we think about who the disciples were, they're fishermen. Most of them were fishermen. And fishermen, the common man, had no opportunity to climb that social ladder. They had no opportunity to elevate their rank. If you were born in the lower class back then, that defined you your entire life. So you think about how these lowly fishermen had been selected by Jesus to be his disciple. What an honor. What an honor. And then later, they'd been given the authority to do miracles, to cast out demons. And they'd gone from, in this culture, they'd gone from low social status that they had no hope of ever getting out of to being people of high rank in their eyes. So with that in mind, you can see this, this type of culture and what had happened to disciples, we can easily see how you would get into these kinds of conversations. You would talk about how great you are, the opportunities that you had, and how might you elevate yourself even more. And that would lead, of course, to arguments because the other person would be wanting to outdo you and let's climb the ladder and let's make ourselves great. And yet they know they've crossed a line. They know this is a silly argument. Why else would they keep their mouths shut? Now, we don't do this. Maybe not in so many words, but let's be honest. We do to a degree. We might be a little more subtle about it, but we do it. Maybe we don't use the terminology, you know, I'm the greatest in my family, and here's why. I'll list off all of my credentials. But, you know, we love to point out our strengths. We love to point out our accomplishments. We love it when people take notice of the things that we do. We, we, love, we love to feel a sense of pride about ourselves. We do like to elevate ourselves above others. We do compare ourselves to other people. And we can even do this in a way that almost sounds humble. You know, I've got my faults, but I'm not as bad as, you know. The disciples keep their mouths shut. They're trying to avoid this confrontation. But Jesus 
He's not going to let them off the hook. He says to them, okay, you want to be great? Do this. Be last. Be servant of all. If you want to be a somebody, be a nobody. In that day, a servant would have been literally a nobody. But then Jesus does something astounding here. He takes a child into his arms. Who was this child? We don't know. Perhaps it was Peter's. We're just not sure. But, but just imagine this for a second. Jesus cradles a child in his arms. The same arms that stretched out the universe enveloped this child. Just wrap your mind around that. And why a child? Take this into account. In that culture, the bottom of the social ladder were children. Children were completely dependent upon their parents. They had no place on the social structure. Now, this doesn't mean they weren't loved by their parents. Of course, they were loved. It just means they were at the bottom. They didn't bring any honor because they were constantly needy. And Jesus takes this child, this picture of the least of the least, into his arms, and he says, you want to be great? Receive a child. Go to the least of the least. And that word received by there, that has the idea of welcoming, being hospitable. Jesus is saying, you want to be great? Welcome the helpless. Welcome those who can do nothing for themselves. Be hospitable to the lowly. Love the least. What happens when we do that? Jesus tells us right here, when we do that, we're receiving not them. We're welcoming not them. We're welcoming him. But then he says, you're not welcoming even me. You're welcoming the Father. To humble ourselves and serve the least of the least is to serve Christ and the Father. Why? Well, one reason is it's easy to serve those in high social classes because you get some attention when you do that. It's easy to, to serve those who are high on the social scale. There's a kind of honor in that. But what do you gain by serving the lowly? What do you achieve? What would be your motive except that you really wanted to serve God? Christ-honoring servanthood does not discriminate. Let me just ask some difficult questions. Has your choice whether or not to serve ever been based upon the type of person or people being served? Have you ever ignored somebody because of who they were when they needed help? I'm guilty of that. Even subconsciously, I think we do this. We neglect people based on some sort of bias First example that jumps to my mind, the people that stand on the street corners with signs asking for help, what's your reaction to them? Even if it's only an internal reaction, what is it? I know we could argue. We could argue about their ability to go get a job. We could argue if they're really in need or not. We could argue all kinds of things, and we could discuss that all day long, but they're still made in the image of our Savior. And whether or not they need physical help, chances are they need spiritual help. And we can only get to the spiritual by addressing the physical. Likely, they need the gospel. 
You know, another way to look at this is to consider different ways, again, that we serve in the church. Are there any areas of service that you feel, to use the term, beneath you? Not worthy of your time? Or, maybe put it this way, you don't think it's a good fit. Now, there's something to be said for that, but is it just an excuse? I once heard a story of a professional opera singer who joined a church. Guess what ministry he wanted to get involved with? Music worship, worship ministry. The problem was that his style of singing didn't jive with Sunday morning worship. His vocal training prevented him from being able to lead worship, even though he was finely tuned in the art of singing. He honestly was more of a distraction. So you know what he ended up doing? He stopped serving on the worship team, and he went to be a parking attendant. That's humility. And I'm not saying anything negative about parking attendants, but think about going from the stage where all the attention is on you to just being a parking attendant. He didn't let pride over his gift of singing stand in the way of where God really wanted him to serve. And my question is, how about you? Are you letting yourself stand in the way of being able to serve in an area because you just, that's ah, not up my alley. Perhaps you wouldn't say that. But maybe deep down there could be a hesitation to share some burden in the church because that's just not my thing. Now listen to me, please. I say this in membership classes. I am all about serving where we're passionate and gifted. Absolutely. But could God be nudging you in a direction that you may not be comfortable with? Take some time and ask him that this week. Christ-honoring servanthood sacrifices to the extreme. Christ-honoring servanthood does not discriminate. Finally, Christ-honoring servanthood is not hyper-exclusive. It's not hyper-exclusive. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John speaks up here. First time that John is speaking in the book of Mark and he shares this event with Jesus that seemed to have happened at some point. The disciples saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name and they tried to stop him. Now, this brings up a lot of questions in my mind. First of all, who was this guy? Who was this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name who's not following the crowd with Jesus, apparently? It just kind of feels like this random guy that they met who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. Like maybe he heard Jesus speaking and casting out a demon and he thought to himself, I'll try that. But that can't be the case. We saw last week how that couldn't have been the case where the disciples failed to cast out a demon. This guy is succeeding at it. What does that tell us? That tells us this, this guy actually was a believer in Jesus. He couldn't have cast out demons without that. Secondly, why did the disciples try to stop him? He's doing a good work. Why did the disciples try to stop him? I honestly think that's easy to answer. And again, I'm going back to last week. They were embarrassed 
they were embarrassed that this random guy was doing something they failed to do last week when they tried to cast the demon out of the boy. And coupled with that, that is the idea in their minds, this guy's not following us. He's going around doing these works. He's over here, we're over here. He's not following. How dare this guy? Thirdly, and this is just me, but I'm like, when did this happen? When did they run into this guy? Because John or Mark sorry, has been telling us this story about Jesus traveling, and all the time it seems like the disciples are with him. When did they break away and do that? That's just my brain doing silly things and trying to figure that out. But finally, why did John feel like he had to share this tidbit? I mean, this seems completely disjointed from the conversation. Jesus is talking about servanthood, and John interjects with a story about this random dude casting out demons. Maybe, as Jesus is talking about servanthood and what it really looks like, maybe John's conscience pricked him, and he just kind of blurted out this thing. Maybe it was coming from a different motivation. Maybe it was coming from pride that, you know, well, we served by stopping somebody who wasn't with us. And maybe John was hoping for an attaboy from Jesus. You know, there's something else about this story that's interesting. It's reminiscent of another story way back in Numbers chapter 11. In that passage, Moses had gathered 70 elders of Israel, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all began to prophesy. But two of those elders didn't come to the meeting place. They'd remained in the camp with Israel. And they also started prophesying right there in the camp around everyone else. And Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, when he learns of what happened in the camp, he gets angry and he goes to Moses and said, Moses, tell them to stop. But Moses says this in Numbers eleven twenty nine. He says, are you jealous of me for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Similarly, we come back to our story, and Jesus says this statement, which was probably not what the disciples were expecting. He says, don't stop him. He's doing my work. Jesus says, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, no one who's following Jesus and relying on God's power to do such a mighty work, like cast out a demon, will just turn around and say, and deny Jesus later. It's not gonna happen. This is a genuine believer who's doing the work of God. Don't stop him. Don't be jealous of his work. Don't shut him down just because he's not in an in-group and Jesus follows this up with verse 40. He says, for no one, for the one who is not against us is for us. Let's not reject or deny God's work in someone else because they're from another denomination or because they do things differently or don't hold to the same standards as we do. The bride of Christ is the bride of Christ. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who look different and act different and their services are different and the way they minister is different and sometimes the way they believe is different, not counting the, the essentials to the Christian faith, just the, the non-essentials. They believe a little bit differently, but they are doing the work of God and it's arrogant to think that we're the only ones who do it right. That's just flat out not true. And there are churches that have this this kind of hyper-exclusive attitude. It's our way or the highway. Now, please understand, I don't want to offend anyone in this room, but I want to point out an example here 
An example of this kind of thinking would be people who cling to the King James Version of the Bible as the only translation. There are Christians who get caught up in thinking this is the only real translation, the King James, and they shun other Christians who use different translations. I'm not trying to discourage you. If you want to read King James, go for it. But we shouldn't cling to that as the only translation, the only accurate translations. That's just not true. Another example would be homeschooling. Our family homeschools. I love it. It's what God has called us to do. I believe in it. But you know, there are some who take it too far and believe that every Christian family should be a homeschooling family. And you're sinning if you're not. And that's just not true. We have a lot of homeschooling families here in our church, and that's great. We have a lot of public school and private school families here in, that church, in this church, and guess what? That's great too. Parents should teach their children based on how they are convicted by the Holy Spirit and believe that the Holy Spirit wants them to teach their children. It shouldn't be based on what other people say. Christ-honoring servanthood is not hyper-exclusive. I use that term hyper-exclusive because sometimes we need to be exclusive. I added the word hyper in there because sometimes we do need to be exclusive. Let me explain. You know, We're picky about some areas where people serve. We would never put a non-believer in Harvest Kids teaching the kids. We would never do that. That doesn't make any sense. We would never put a non-believer in a role where they're teaching people about Jesus and they don't even believe in Jesus. So there are cases where we need to be exclusive, yes, but on a whole, there's no need for extreme exclusivity. See, when we become hyper-exclusive, we let the little negative things shape our attitude about others, which means we're not loving the body of Christ. We're dividing the body of Christ. So be careful of the my way or the highway type of mentality. This kind of thinking divides. It doesn't unify, and it certainly doesn't love. There's a quote. This is credited to St. Augustine, and it goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In other words, Let's be unified on what's most important. The gospel is received by grace through faith. Jesus Christ is and was God. The existence of the Trinity is real, and so on and so on. We could talk about the essentials to the Christian faith, but let's be gracious on the non-essentials, using different translations, different types of worship music, views on things like eschatology, the study of the last things, those kinds of things. And in all things, in all things, love one another. Christ-honoring servanthood is not hyper-exclusive. See, the bottom line here with the disciples and this man who was casting out demons is jealousy. He was casting out demons. He was not with the disciples. And they failed to do that in our last passage. And they were just jealous about it because they wanted to be the great ones. They wanted to have this greatness and not share it with others, which is what led to this whole argument in the first place. So Jesus, just to settle this matter of greatness, Jesus adds the statement in verse 41. For truly I I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
In other words, the smallest act of kindness in the name of Jesus is an act of service that God has approved. It doesn't matter if a person is casting out demons or handing out a glass of water. The size of the person's act does not determine their greatness. It's the heart of the person. Are they in it to ultimately serve Jesus? Jesus said, if you want to be great, you got to serve. To the level we serve is the level of greatness we achieve. To the level we serve, it's true. To the level we serve is the level of greatness we achieve. So what does that say about Jesus' ultimate act of service? That he holds the ultimate place of greatness. The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest all the while walking with the greatest person ever. No one can ever match the level of service that Jesus went to. He went to the cross, completely innocent. He died alone to satisfy the wrath of the Father. Jesus himself says in John 10, 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay my life down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. He was the ultimate extreme example of service, which means he holds the ultimate extreme position of greatness. And because of that, because of that ultimate service that's done by our Savior, we can be motivated to really, truly serve one another out of love. And the more we keep his act of service in view, the more we truly desire to, be, to serve him and to serve one another. We look most like Christ when we serve General William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. Later in his life, he lost his eyesight. His son, Bromwell, was given the difficult task of telling his father there would be no recovery. And as his son, Bromwell, was telling his father the tragic news, William Booth asked his son, do you mean that I'm blind? I shall never see your face again? His son said, no, probably not in this world. And then William Booth said this, I have done what I could for God and his people with my eyes. Now I shall do what I can for God without my eyes. That's a picture of Christ honoring servanthood. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you performed the greatest act of service this world has ever seen. And it's because of that act of service that we can do any kind of Christ-honoring service at all. Jesus, teach us to honor you with our actions. Teach us to serve in ways that please you. Guide us to be servants in the extreme, to never discriminate and to not be hyper-exclusive. Let us lay ourselves aside and serve one another. Above all, help us to serve to your glory. 
Let us be motivated by what brings you glory. For we pray this in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.